0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's open up to John 13. We'll pick up at verse 31, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. John 13:31 This is the word of the Lord. Therefore when he Judas had gone out Jesus said, "Now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately." Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot, come, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. We are so thankful that you have given it to us to show us yourself, to teach us about ourselves. Father, just show us the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, and his glory. Lord, I pray as we go through this passage that you would open up our minds to understand it. And from that understanding, may we live according to what we read. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So Judas, Judas, the betrayer of the Lord, the lover of money, the son of perdition, has left the upper room. There's confusion inside the room, outside of the Apostle John. It seems that he's the only one who got the answer of who it was who was betraying him, and the others are confused. And um, one of those men, the devil, had entered into that man, and immediately afterwards, he had fled from the presence of the Lord into the night. He goes being a creature of darkness, into the darkness. And so upon his departure, Jesus continued to speak to his men, the men, you know, who would go out into the world, calling all men in every place to repent and believe in the one that was talking with them that night. So Judas is out, and he remains, and, you know, the next... Several chapters are Jesus talking to them, and then 17 is his high priestly prayer, and then the end. And so these words, this is his, his last words to the, the group of men that he had drawn around him, those men that would carry on his name to all the nations of the earth. And this is what he says here. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. It's one of those passages where it, it, you kind of get confused about whether the him is the Son or the him is the Father. And that's just fine because they're one. Right? And it gives you the impression that, look, they're one. They... they uh, what what one does the other does. There's perfect uh, there's perfect compatibility here. There's oneness. They they um, are glorifying one another, and they're reveling in their their glory. But they're also mysterious words. Think about being there and hearing Jesus say these things. What does it mean that Jesus is glorified? and that God is glorified in him, and God is glorified in Jesus, and that this glory is going to be manifested immediately. I mean, you, you, you might think that those that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration think, well, something like that's going to happen again, and so we better be ready for it. We're going to see his glory. But it's as if Jesus is relieved at this point that Judas has left the room. He's relieved. And that the ultimate work he came to do that was given to him by his father, which is to die for sinners upon that tree, it's going to happen within hours. It's getting close. Right? Just moments earlier when Judas was still there, Jesus had been troubled in spirit. Remember, it said he was troubled in spirit. Now, though... It seems he's focused on glory. He's focused on the joy that is set before him. And, um, and that joy that's set before him ultimately is his own glory, but then ultimately, ultimately, the glory of his Father. The goal of all history and even the lordship of Christ over this world is that the Father might have glory. That is the purpose of all things. That's the purpose he gave you breath right? That's the purpose that there are worlds and stars. It's the purpose of his creation. It's the purpose of your mouth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it doesn't stop there, right? That has a purpose. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, right? So we'll be bowing down saying, Lord Jesus Christ, And God will be getting, God the Father will be getting all the glory from that worship of His Son. The love His Father has toward Him and the loving respect the Son of God shows to the Father are now flooding His heart from being troubled in spirit, considering this this betrayal, to now just reveling in His Father, that constant comfort that He had the reason why he would go off, be by himself to pray. Because he wanted that consolation that he got from his father. In the cross, and then ultimately in his resurrection, the glory of the man, the Son of Man will be demonstrated. Right? And notice here it says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Um, the Son of Man is... Is used by Jesus. And there's only one other time that Jesus is called the Son of Man outside of Jesus saying it himself. And so this is this this was his own designation. And every time you come across the Son of Man, it, it's, not, it's not pointing toward his humanity, it's actually pointing toward his ancient deity. Okay? It, it is not um it's not. It's not pointing toward uh, his, his, the flesh he had taken on. The ancient prophecies of Daniel are hours away from being fulfilled. You remember this from Daniel 7. I kept looking at the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. That's speaking of the Son of Man, that one who has that intimate fellowship with the Ancient of Days, the Father. Right? So Jesus says, verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified. The cross, that demonstration of God's love towards sinners in which Christ was, was victorious over death, the wages of sin, and the resurrection which, uh, in which death is unable to keep Him down, both show us that the Son of Man has dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And that all peoples, nations, and, and uh, people of every tongue are to serve Him. So Christ's obedient death brings glory to His Father, and the Father glorifies the Son by raising Him from the dead and seating Him after His ascension to His right hand. All of this is, is coming quickly. All of this is on the verge of happening. The Son and the Father are glorifying one another. And dear brothers and sisters, even as they're rejoicing in one another, you benefit radically by their love for one another. I mean, that's really the the glory of the love between the Father and the Son is it's so fruitful. And you're the fruit. You're the fruit of that love between that obedience of the Son to the Father and the love of the Father toward the sun, you are the fruit of that. It produces fruit, right? And even as Jesus, for a moment, is dwelling on that glory and speaking to the men of the glory, his mind now turns back to these puny men before him. They're just dust. They're puny. They're, they're weak. They're sinful. And he's leaving them. And it's a mind boggling amount of work that he has put on their plate to accomplish when he's gone. Right? Right? Even, you know, um, his thoughts turn toward them, these men who had been recently bickering about who was the greatest. You know, that just happened moments before this, and, and addresses them affectionately, turning toward them and says, Little children. He's not belittling them with those words. He's being affectionate with these men. He says, little children, and um, this is the only time in the Gospels that, that we read of Jesus calling his men little children. It's the only time. Here in the upper room, his men combined, and he's about to tell them some hard news, and he says, little children, Ryle explains that this is a term of affection and compassion. He says, like the language of a father speaking to children when he is about to leave, uh, leave them alone as orphans in the world, right? A father departing my little children. And, and Calvin says, in calling them little children, he shows by that gentle appellation that he has reason for departing from them, that his reason for departing from them, is not that he cares little about their welfare, for he loves them very tenderly. right? Just in those little words, you see a picture of the tender love of Christ for his men. He had every reason to be annoyed with them right now, coming out of their arguments, and yet here he is turning to them, my friends, little children. Right? It's a good reminder to us that when others, think of it, when others are on the verge of, of hardship. You know, something difficult is coming for them. We ought to be tender and affectionate toward them. It, it's helpful when somebody is facing a trial for us to be tender and affectionate toward them. I, I'm, I sometimes do this. I often fail at doing this. When my wife busts her toe on a chair, it annoys me to death. She's hopping around in agony, right? And it's just, I get angry. But that's wrong. It is wrong, even though it's happened hundreds of times. It's still wrong, right? Who knows how many times she's broken her toes. But um, I often remind my children and myself, my children who can who can be quite unsympathetic, as I can, right, come home complaining about this or that teacher, this or that assignment, or, you know, this or that stupid person. Um, I often remind them that there there is much suffering in the world, and it is especially cruel for us to add to other people's misery through our unkindness and censoriousness. It's just really terrible when we do that. Somebody's going through a trial, and we just heap on them our censoriousness. Um, and we do so just because we don't want to help them. We don't want to get involved, and so we create some distance, right? Oh, they they're not, they don't need to be helped, you know, because they're stupid for getting into that situation. I mean this doesn't happen to you guys. Huh. Wonderful. I'll just move on. <laughs> Apply it to myself. Simple kindness, simple, simple affectionate words, simple physical help, sending a text, right? Sending a card even and especially sometimes just being silent, can relieve the terrible distress of living in a fallen world that we all feel. We all suffer in various ways. And yet we all often heap more distress on those who are distressed. Jesus is looking at his men who are just about to lose him. Can you imagine that? They're not losing You know, a drinking buddy, although they were that, he is losing, they are losing the Son of God. They are losing Almighty God leading them through all the challenges that they've gone through up to this case. And so Jesus is looking at his men who would lose him, be scattered deny him as in the case of Peter and then go out into the world to be treated as the dregs of the whole world and then die all to testify of his greatness and he builds them up with these simple words of affection. Little children. Shame on us for withholding affection toward those who do not meet our standards. Shame on us. Shame on us for being annoyed with the weak. And then when we are the one who is weak, can't even lift our heads from the pillow, we just sit there thinking, where is the encouragement? Where is the kind word I need right now? If Jesus had done that, Right? Withhold those words of affection. These men would, would only have known his wrath and condemnation. Instead, he was, he was a friend of sinners. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me as I said to the Jews. Now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. Right? He, he's, he's preparing them for something that's coming. I've been telling you that I'm going to die and then three days later rise from the dead. You haven't understood this, but the time for my departure has come. It's come. After I die, you're going to be confused. You're going to be wandering about in the wilderness. You're going to be scattered, but then will come my resurrection and you will be convinced that I have risen from the dead and everything will change. That's what's coming. But there's going to be some confusion in the midst of this. Be ready for it, right? Now, where is Jesus going? He's going to heaven to prepare a place for his people. That's where he's going. He would ascend to the right hand of his Father, and it was not time for these men to go there yet. They had to stay. They had to stay in glory in their suffering. Right? They had to endure their own crosses. They had to go out and preach the gospel and be rejected. They had to complete what was lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Jesus would go to his father, but they had to stay, and they had to keep their hand to the plow. And the work, the work amazing work, the work of God would be going through these ordinary men, called men, apostles, but ordinary men nonetheless, And it would be agony. It was agony for the apostle Paul, wasn't it, to remain behind and have to do the work of ministry. It was agony for him, right? He desired to depart and to be with Christ, but also then he was he was wanted to stay and serve the church. And uh, this is the split that happens in the heart of every believer. I mean, if you truly believe, if you're not simply clinging to this world and think that this world. It, is all there is, right? If if that's the case, you won't have any split in your heart. Your affections are all on this world, right? But if you're a Christian and the Spirit is in you, your heart is always going to be split between this world and the next, right? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. We all, if we have the Holy Spirit, desire to live on in this life, doing God's will, loving our families, enjoying Thanksgiving meals and, you know, sweet potato casserole, being productive for his kingdom. But then we also desire to be done with it all. But to be done with this world and to rest with Christ, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. There's work to do. There are glorious things. I have to preach the gospel and, and woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, he says, you know? And so Jesus is telling the disciples that they cannot yet receive their inheritance, but that they must take his name out to the world. It will be hard. It will mean they will be afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in them the body, uh, in their body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in the body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh." That's what they were, that's what Jesus was going to send them out to do. Crushing, suffering, persecution for his name. Jesus, their savior, their lord, their rabbi, their companion, their friend, was leaving them and the work would have to continue. It's one thing to have the head of the company retire and close the business. It's quite another thing for the head of the company to retire and hand that business on to young men. And these chapters we are in the midst of is Jesus building them up, reminding them of what is true so that they might not lose heart when he departs, when he leaves. What does he then say to his little children? He says what fathers and mothers say to their children all the time. Would you stop fighting with one another and love one another? Would you stop fighting with one another? Am I going to have to stop this car? How many of you have stopped the car? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Yep. Good. Um, let's not talk about it. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Oh, man. Uh, How is this the command to love one another, a, a, a new commandment? Why does he say it? I give you a new commandment. Um, hasn't God been insisting since Cain and Abel that they were to love one another since Cain killed his brother Abel? Um, hasn't, hasn't God insisted on this since he gave the commandment, you shall not murder, right? Which is not just the negative prohibition, but the positive command to to, to love, right? Right? Um, Since Moses wrote in Leviticus, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Yeah, that's in Leviticus. And so the command to love, that's as old as the hills, right? That's been around since the beginning. It could be new in this sense. Perhaps Jesus meant The degree to which we love one another must be new, higher, you know, it must be more intense, unlike anything before. Or it could be new in this sense. Christians are to have more love toward one another in a greater degree than they are to have for unbelievers in the world, right? So focused more on the love of brothers and sisters in the church. It could be new in this sense. Um, Though the command was given to the Jews that they love one another, Jesus made it more central after his death and resurrection than it had been before. Like the Jews had the command, but then Jesus takes it and like elevates this to be like the preeminent command. Could be new in this sense. Jesus used the word new simply to amplify the incredible value of love. It's so, it's, it's, it's new, it's, it's, it's invested with this quality, you know, it's so important. It could be new in this sense. The Jews had so perverted God's command to love that they thought it had many strictures. You know, they, they, they put, they said, yeah, we'll love, but you know, not this way and not this way and not this way. And so Jesus came along and explained to them just exactly what the commandment actually meant. Thus, it was new in the sense of newly explained. And how did Jesus explain this commandment to love? He had done so several years earlier in one of his sermons. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the Jews' summary of God's teaching." Love your neighbors, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now listen to this carefully. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and And the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do that? And you're like, oh man. So that's what it means to love one another? That's the newness of the love, you know? As opposed to the old love of the Jews, that's like... um, we have to love one another and hate the Gentiles and be set apart and cut off from them and cut them off. The new commandment was that we, we are to love our brothers and we are to love even our enemies. Calvin, as the goodness of God extends to the whole world, listen to that, as the goodness of God extends to the whole world, So we ought to love all, even those who hate us. I mean, it's sort of exasperating, isn't it? It's hard enough to love those who are our brothers and sisters in the church, isn't it? That to then have the obligation on us to love those who hate us, those who have it out for us, those who would rather see us suffer than know any comfort. It's, it's really hard, right? We, we sin against one another, and 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 we have logs in our own eyes when we try to do surgery on, on other people's eyes, and we get annoyed, and our pride keeps us high and exalted. But the love we are to have to, is is to extend beyond those we fellowship within our church to even our enemies. You know, and and let's try to find some sophisticated way to blunt the edges of this verse so that it doesn't actually mean our enemies, you know. I mean, how many commentaries could I probably go to where they'd be like, well, you know, redemptive historical, this really meant that, and blah, blah, blah. I mean I could I'm I'm sure of it, right? But but we are to love our enemies, those who have it out for us, those who hate everything about our faith, those who would see us locked up and executed. So how do you love your enemies? How are you going to love your enemies? Do you have enemies? I guarantee there are enemies that are against you. Right? Perhaps you you Um, have buried your head in the ground and don't see them. Or perhaps you're just thinking of political categories right now, which is really lame, okay? Politics is always going to be conflict and blah, 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 right? But that really has very little to do with your faith. There, I said that. I'll stick to it but there are people who hate you. So how do you love your enemies? You don't take revenge. When they do something that hurts you, you don't hurt them back. You don't take revenge. That's one very difficult way to love your enemy. You don't treat them as they treated you. You don't, you, um, another way is you patiently endure their evils. They come at you and, Revile you and you just patiently endure it. You don't, you don't start spewing forth your own venom. That's easy, right? Um, here's another way to love your enemies. You actually assist those who hate you by trying to relieve some of their own burdens. That has the double effect of heaping burning coals on their head but actually taking a cup of water to somebody who would like to uh, kick you in the face. How about this for loving your enemies? You desire their salvation. You really want to see them submit their life to Christ. You want them to come to know the peace that surpasses understanding. You want them to maybe even have a more exalted position in heaven and better rewards than you. Here's another way to love your enemies. You render good for evil. You actually do good in the face of evil. They do something evil to you, you do good back. Again, double um, product there. But all of that's very easy, right? Don't take revenge. Don't fantasize about taking vengeance patiently endure evils, assist those who hate you, desire their salvation and pray for them and pray that they would be saved and render good for evil. It's easy. It's so easy, right? We can't love one another in here, but it's so, you know, it's so easy to do all of that for our enemies. No, it's incredibly difficult. It takes the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. It takes the mind of Christ to be able to do this, right? Now, does this apply to those escorts out at the abortion clinic who live to defile us? Now, a lot of you haven't been out there to see these escorts, but they, they play um, sexually explicit music in our faces. They spit on us, they call us human garbage, just repeatedly. They uh, mock us. They uh, mock our faith. They, bowed, they put, put up little idols and bow down to them, thinking that they're mocking us. Does this extend to even them, those who cast insults at us, who have it out for us? It does. And it does, and it's easy to say that it does because the Son of God has had to approach you in the same manner, hasn't he? Except you're way more despicable. He has way more knowledge of how you're despicable than we have of those escorts. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I mean, what love, right? Engaged in hostile deeds toward God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. While we were enemies, while we hated God, blaspheming Him, mocking Him, living so that we could break His law. And so if we have any sense of our own evil and the love of Christ towards us, even while we were His enemies, we will begin to understand what kind of love we must show toward those who hate us. That's really, really hard. Was it hard for Jesus? Yeah. 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 He sweat blood. He asked God if that cup could be taken away from him. He trembled in spirit. He hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was it easy for him? No. Could he have failed? Absolutely not. It does not, you know, in in, in loving your neighbors, it does not mean that we don't pray for God to take up our cause. We do pray that. We, we have a million examples of that in Scripture. We pray that God would take up our cause. That is a proper prayer because vengeance is God's, right? But it does mean something. We love our enemies because that is precisely what Jesus did in loving us, and there is power in that example, right? There's power in doing what Jesus did because by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, love will demonstrate that we are following the love of Christ and we are so far from this we have a difficult time even loving our own children the fruits of the loving union of a man and a woman we have a difficult time we have a difficult time loving our own spouses We have a difficult time certainly loving others who really love Jesus. Love, though, is to be the thing that demonstrates to others that we are followers of Christ. Discernment doesn't take the top spot. Right? Miracles doesn't take the top spot. You know, they'll know, they'll know you're Christians by the, the amazing miracles you perform. No. Snarky witticisms doesn't even take the top spot. Intellectual acumen does not take the top spot. Scholarship does not take the top spot. Love. Love. The thing that Jesus said would prove that you were followers of Christ is love. Love. Ryle goes so far as saying that doctrinal orthodoxy without love is a betrayal of Christ. He writes, Let us note how far from satisfactory is the state of those who are content with sound doctrine or sound doctrinal opinions and orthodox correct views of the gospel while in their daily life they give way to ill temper, ill nature, malice, envy, quarreling, squabbling, bickering, surliness, passion, snappish language, crossness of work and manner. Such persons, whether they know it or not, are daily proclaiming that they are not Christ's disciples. It is nonsense to talk about justification and regeneration and election and conversion And the uselessness of works, unless people can see in us practical Christian love. You believe that? So many think that Ryle is setting love against orthodoxy. And that's not what he's saying. So many progressive Christians do that, right? And so, love, love in the form of acceptance and and making no doctrinal distinctions of of any kind becomes the goal. No, we are to be orthodox without losing love. The Reformed have perhaps perfected the ability to think being a follower of Christ means doctrinal precision over and against love, kindness, service, providing a cup of water, etc. But we're to be both. But get this, your orthodoxy without love will not prove you are a follower of Christ. Your love for others with your love for God's truth will prove you are a disciple of Christ. That's what will prove it. This will prove true in your own home, in your extended family, in your community, in your church, in your nation. Now again, we see the Apostle Peter again responding instantly to what Jesus has just said without understanding, right? Jesus said he was going away, and Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus does not tell him where, but he says that Peter was not allowed to follow him to his destination right now. Where I go, you cannot come. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. He's like, not now. Hang on, it'll be later. Peter, as we expect at this point, objects. Lord, why can I not follow you right now? You know, why can I not come along with you? We've been, we've been together this long. You know, we're starting to understand some things and this has been great. Can I not come along with, with you wherever you're going? In fact, Jesus Even if it means death, I'll lay down my life for you. If that's where you're going, I'm going to, and I will lay down my life for you. And at those words, all of us who know Scripture, the hair stands up on the back of your neck. I will lay down my life for you. to which Jesus says those painful words to Peter. Just the question, will you lay down your life for me? And then with that solemn amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So much for the love of Peter. Peter doesn't get what is going on, even though Jesus has repeatedly told him, right, what is going to happen, that he is going to die, and then three days later he's going to rise, and then he's going to go be with his father, right? He, he is ignorant. Peter, Peter this, this is ignorance on Peter's part. I'm not saying that we wouldn't share his ignorance. I'm not saying that he was the only one there who wasn't ignorant. They were all ignorant. They were left, um, you know, in ignorance, But just, you know, it's just like us who have the Holy Spirit, who read the Word of God, right, clear as it is and forget or even ignore or even especially despise what the Word of God says. We do what Peter's doing here. He was ignorant. He was not hearing the Word of God. We do the same thing. And then Jesus saying, you cannot follow me now, is softened wonderfully by by him saying, you will follow me later. It's a kindness of Christ to Peter in some sense. Also quite intense because following Christ's path would mean that Peter would suffer and die. And then when Peter questions him, he's puffed up with pride, brothers and sisters. He is puffed up with pride. He thinks he is stronger than he is which is what pride will do. He thinks he is stronger than he is. Uh, Here's what I'll do. I'll lay down my life for you. Let's go. Let's roll. Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Calvin says, Peter is blamed for pretending to be a valiant soldier while he, is a beyond, while he is beyond arrow shot. For he has not yet made trial of his strength and imagines that he could do just about anything. Brings to mind the words of Ahab, let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. That's what Peter is doing. He, he's like, I can do this, I got this. You know, but he's, he's putting on his armor. So how did things work out for Peter that night? Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hits you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out of the gate to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely. You too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear. Can you imagine that? He's red-faced, he's angry, he's cursing, he's swearing. I do not know the man." And immediately, a rooster crows. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Foolish Peter. Ignorant Peter. Are you trusting in your own strength? Are you boasting in it like foolish Peter was here? I got this, I'm good, I'm with you to the end. You best get on your knees and pray, repenting of what you think is your strength. You too have indwelling sin and are quite prone to both the ignorance and pride that Peter demonstrated in his boasting before his Savior. The end result was that he didn't have the strength to die with Christ. Christ. In fact, he didn't even have the strength that night to be known as a follower of Christ. In fact, he, he didn't even have the strength to keep from shouting swear words when he was confronted by their third question. Oh, man, Pray. Get on your knees and pray and repent of what you think is your strength. It, so many ministries today, it's like they, they just go from strength to strength, boasting in the, their victories and boasting in their strength. And I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. I'm talking about reformed ministries. It's like strength to strength to strength to strength. They got the strength of all the apostles and the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus combined. But I resonate with Peter. That was sin. It was not right. It was not good of Peter. It was the most horrible thing that he could possibly have done as Jesus is being spit upon and mocked, as denying that he was even a follower. But you know what's beautiful is he doesn't go the way of Judas. He goes the way of Peter. He weeps bitterly, And Jesus comes to him and says, feed my sheep. Peter repents. Peter weeps. And knows the kindness of the Lord in this. But this was not good of Peter. This was not good of Peter. And so let it be a reminder to us that we need to ask God for strength. We need to pray before we get involved in anything and start boasting about what's going to happen. Right? We need to pray. Because our, our faithlessness can break in in a millisecond. And so let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is faithful. When we lack faithfulness, And Father, I pray that, that we, we would study your word so as not to be ignorant, that we would study our own hearts so as to know when we are being tempted, and that the study of the word would help us during those times when we are tempted so that we may uh, use the sword of the Spirit to push back the devil. Lord, I pray that you would give us a delight in your word. I pray that we would, we would live the Christian life, building up those muscles of faith by continually giving attention to you in your word, your worship, your and, and in prayer. Father, forgive us for trusting in our the strength of our own arms. Forgive us for trusting in Carnal things, and so Father, uh, be be at work in each of us. We ask that you would provide the strength we need when temptation comes to find that way of escape. Lord, we pray. We pr- we need your help. We we. Our, our hearts are cold. And we find it hard to, to be outgoing in our love for our brothers and sisters. And so I pray that we would start there, that we would love one another, that we would show interest in one another, that we would listen to one another, that that we would wound one another for the, for the sake of holiness and purity. True friendship. Pray that we would, we would um, weep with those who weep Rejoice with those who rejoice. I pray that we would learn sympathy toward one another. I pray that our hearts would enlarge with love. And Lord, I pray this in each of our households. I pray that older siblings would love younger siblings, and younger siblings would love older siblings. I pray that we would have words of kindness toward one another that our houses would be filled with those kindnesses. Forgive us for, for all the filth and all the anger and, and all the complaining that drops out of our mouths, out of our children's mouths. I pray that uh, we would love our, our neighbors. We would show an interest in their lives. We would get to know them. We would talk of Jesus. Talk of things beyond the weather. Father, we pray that, that we would then, Father, learn how to control our spirits, to have that control that comes by your Spirit so that we might love those who are dead set against us, who, who s- would seriously delight in our suffering and our hurt. And so we need your minds, Jesus. We need the mind of Christ. Fill our hearts and our minds with love. Help us to do this work so that people see it and think wonderful thoughts of our Savior, Jesus so that people will see our our commitment to him and his word. Father, help us in this, grow us in this, lead us forward as a church, stir up the spirit in us to do this work. Father, as we approach this week of, of giving thanks, so thankful that we as a nation still do this. And... Lord, I pray that our thanks would center upon you and Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, that we would look upon your provision, that we would feast, and that feast would be us setting our sights on the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we would look forward to the good things to come. And and Lord, give us love around that, that Thanksgiving table. Give us love for one another. Give us good words. Help us to be courageous. Help us to to ask good questions and engage in faithful conversation. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased with the, the thanksgiving that comes forth from our mouths. I pray that this whole week we would be telling others what we're thankful for, who we're thankful for, and ultimately that we would point to you and the thanks we have for the salvation we have in Jesus. Lord, give us a delight in this task. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.